Hello, my name is uh, Malak Arif. Welcome to Bridging the Generation podcast, where we are connecting the new with the old, the old with the new, and we are bridging the gap in hip-hop, R&B, and jazz. And today, I have a very, very, very special guest. This woman right here is one of the most influential women in music history. One of the most influential women in black music culture and it's an honor to have her on this platform today welcome to the platform it's deanna williams the one and only honor and pleasure to be with you no doubt no doubt well thank you for for, for being here on the platform uh, i i want to talk about your illustrious career i've been following you whew, i'm talking about at least for the past 20 years and I've heard nothing but great things about you. Reading excerpts, uh, me being a, a a music guy myself, someone who's very influenced by what you have uh, brought to the culture, uh, I could do nothing but applaud what you have accomplished in the music uh, industry. So, with that being said, I would like to go from the beginning. I would like to start from the beginning you had so many things that you have done in your career i can't touch on all of them and i'm not gonna keep you here all night so don't worry about that <laughs> all good all good well i will start with almighty god because it's from god that all my blessings the very life force i enjoy start there and then with my ancestors and my wonderful parents george williams and nancy vivis newman my mother and father wonderful people raised me i'm an only child um, so I was inundated with an abundance of, of love, of affection, information. My, my parents poured into me. I'm a great example of what happens when uh, a, a child gets a lot of attention and love and interest. And that's what my parents gave me. Encouragement. They were big on telling me, my, especially my father, that I was capable of doing anything that I set my mind to. And that was wonderful to give me that level of confidence at a very young age and it stayed with me all my life. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So New York, I was born in New York, raised yeah. in the Bronx, Puerto Rico and Bayamon and Harlem. I'm okay. a native New Yorker and uh, spent my formative teenage years in Harlem. Uh, I went to City College in Harlem for a period of time, but um, my love for radio and music was fostered in New York. So, okay. yeah, okay. a lot of people so, think I'm Philly because I've been in Philly way longer than I was in New York, but that's okay. I take the association. I'm a Philly girl. My mother told me some years ago that I was conceived in Philadelphia. Okay. So, so, so I, I'm a so Philly girl. Philadelphia, okay. I know that's right. I know that's right. So, I claim so, Philly too. <laughs> so is Philadelphia your home currently? Yes. I, I okay. lived in New Orleans and Philadelphia for 20 years. I had a home in, in Treme, one of the oldest black neighborhoods in the United States for black people, two blocks from Congo Square in the heart mm. of downtown New Orleans. I lived there for a long time, uh, but I gave up my place last year and uh, I'm, I'm a full-time resident of Philly. Okay. Okay. Now I'm, I'm here. I'm out of Washington, DC. Oh, and City. Yes. Well, yes. And, and you, I, I what I've have, what I've have, read and what i've researched you had an illustrious career here in washington dc uh working for uh whur working with the legendary bob nighthawk terry so 
tell, tell, uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, I started my radio career in New York at WBAI, which is a Pacifica listener-supported free radio station. I wasn't compensated, but the pay I received was the opportunity to be on the airwaves in New York, in my hometown. So I started in the number one market, but my very first paid job where I was getting a check on the regular, and it was um, not a lot, but I was grateful, was from WHUR 96.3, the home of the original Quiet Storm, as created by my best friend, Kevin. Yeah, but Bob Nighthawk Terry and John Paul Simpkins, John was the the uh, general manager and Bob Nighthawk Terry was the operations manager. Legendary in the movie Talk to Me, if um, folks don't you know, know it, check it out. Bob Cedric the Entertainer played him. Cedric the Entertainer played Bob Nighthawk Terry and he is the gentleman who gave me my break in terms of um, becoming a full-time professional. And that was also when I gave birth to Ebony Moonbeams, the radio personality. I was on in the evening, uh, eight o'clock at night, so DC, okay. Chocolate City, you know, yeah. DC loves good music. Oh, it's more than just go-go in DC. Okay. Oh yeah. Ooh, you so you you're you're familiar. You you're definitely yeah. tapped in. You're definitely tapped in. I was on the in. air in 1973. Go-Go was at it was at a height. Chuck yes. Brown, the Soul Searchers, you know, EU. There was a, a whole you could yeah. go to a club on any given night and see one okay. of the go-go bands. And this okay. was 1973, just to give you some perspective. Okay, so so what led you from uh, leaving New York coming to uh, uh, Washington, D.C.? A check. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's right. I know that's right. I know well, that's right. Where, this was my first professional job on the radio, yeah. and Bob Nighthawk Terry offered me this position on the eve of my 19th birthday. So wow. I borrowed money from my mother, Graham, yeah. because I was broke. I didn't have a job. I had dropped out of college right. and went down to D.C., had my interview with Bob Nighthawk Terry. He yeah. hired me on the spot. The next day, I turned 19. Okay. So, yeah, it was a goal that I had set for myself to work on right. the radio full time, to work in no New doubt. York, to work in television, to fall in love and have babies. All of that, the goal was five years. I think I knocked it out in three, but no yeah. Doubt. So WHUR holds a very special place in my heart, my life, my career. And it's where I met my bestie, Kathy Hughes. Okay, so, yeah. okay. And I want I, I want to touch on that a little bit later. So, so um, with you being, uh, being a on-air personality in Washington, D.C., what were a, a, a woman on air personality in Washington, D.C.? What were some of the challenges? Because to my recollection and to my knowledge, there was not many women uh, radio personalities. So so talk about that. Well, the first woman at WHUR, her name was Alfie Williams. She doesn't, for some reason, she doesn't get a lot of acknowledgement, but she was literally the very first woman on the air there. And then uh, there was a woman by the name of Diane Quander who wound up being my housemate. She and I were on the radio together. Diane to this day remains one of my closest inner circle friends. And she became a songwriter. I was and, just about to say. <laughs> yeah, she wrote Caught Up in the Rapture for Anita Baker. Anita Baker. With Gary Glenn. So yes, uh, Diane and then me. So I believe I was the third on air personality. But great point that you make because in the early seventies, there were very few women on the air and certainly not like what you have now. In radio now, you could have a woman 
following another woman. It was unheard of back in the 70s. Okay. So yeah, WHUR. So how was it working? Like I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from another, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm around your son's age. So my knowledge of, you know, the, uh, the legendary Petey Green and Bob Nighthawk, Terry and Sonny and Jim, it comes from research. So how was it working with uh, Bob Nighthawk, Terry? Was he really like the character that was portrayed in the movie? He sure was. He was rougher than that. So let me tell you this. When I first started working for him, he would call me Williams. He had a military background and it was horrible because here I was and my boss, it was never Deanna. It was never, you know, Miss Williams. It was barking. It was like, Williams. And it was like, you know, you were like, and this was my first radio job. So, you know, yeah. I was kind of like walking on ice with my new boss who was tough and rough. But after several months of that treatment, I'm a tough girl too. I'm from New York. I'm from the Bronx, Boogie Down Bronx and Harlem, USA. <laughs> we don't play that. I am Puerto Rican and black and Irish. <laughs> So I yeah. was like, let's go, Bob Terry. And one day I mustered the courage or I had just gotten frustrated. And I walked in his office and I said, I will no longer respond to Williams. It's either Deanna or Miss mm. Williams. Those are your choices. And I turned around and walked out. He told me a few years later when we were both working in New York, he was at WLIB, I was at WBLS with Frankie Crocker. He told me he knew then that I had a promising future in radio and he wanted me to be tough because he knew that as a woman in the game, I was gonna come across tough male bosses mm. and he wanted me. He said he was so proud of me that day when I walked in, mar marched into his office and said like, yo, this is how you referred to me from this point. And mind you, this was my, I was 19. I was a baby, 19. but I just wasn't having it anymore. So my mama yeah. didn't raise me. Uh, she didn't raise me crazy like that. So I yeah, I, I, I garnered his respect and I kept doing that throughout my radio career. I didn't have any okay. problems with my male bosses. Okay. That's, that, that's dope. And, you know, like I said, um, you were one of the first, uh, women on air personalities. Do you feel that uh, nowadays, you know, current 2020, that women have made that have really put a stamp as far as, you know, being, you know, making their mark in the radio uh, industry? You know, do you do you feel like, you know, you're one of those pioneers? And where do you feel as far as uh, where women stand today in radio? Well, first off, I stand on the shoulders of all the great radio personalities male and female, the Georgie Woods and the Jimmy Bishops and the Mary Masons yeah. and the Louise Williams Bishop and the Martha Jean, the Queens. So first off, they were people before me, men and women who did it really well. And I met many of those people as well. So it was a great inspiration for me as a young broadcaster. But I feel that now we were just the pioneers that opened the doors further. And as I said, there were people before me. So they they put the key in the door and opened it and went through. And okay. I just simply just followed their path. But now okay. you have an abundance of women, as I mentioned earlier. There's It's nothing to have a woman doing morning drive and then midday and then afternoon drive. I mean, that was my last full-time gig earlier this year. I was doing full-time right. radio afternoon drive okay. in Philadelphia. So yeah. And when uh, for anybody who is confused, has any doubt, women are bosses. We are multitaskers. 
on a very high level, we have great capacity for a myriad of functions at one time. And you are definitely a testament to that. You're, you're definitely a testament. That. I received so, so, that. So, so look, we're going to move forward. So in 1975, you end up uh, working with Frankie, the legendary Frankie Cocker. Now, 74, 75, am I on point with the, with the year? Yes, 75. Frankie okay, Cocker. Okay, 1975. You yeah, was working. Yes, he called you are. Me on a hotline in DC. I was doing middays at 96.3 WHUR in DC okay. at the point when he called and he offered me a job in St. Louis. My mm -hmm. mother went with me to check out the city and the station. And I remember my mother turning to me saying, This city is way too small for you. Remind you, we were coming from New York <laughs> and DC. My mother was like, This is uh, a yeah. Not this is not uh, what you are accustomed to. Right, right. So we passed on St. Louis. Then he offered me a job in Chicago, and the owners of the station called me and said, "Miss Williams, we lament that we cannot afford to pay you what Mr. Crocker has offered you." And I was like, "Okay, so no Chicago." I was scared of the winters there, anyhow. And uh, then he called me back a third time and offered me WBLS in New York, which is what I wanted, anyhow. It was right. on my list of goals. And so I got to go back to New York. People that I had gone to school with were graduating from college, some of them. And they were like, you have the job I want and you're a college dropout. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you, but <laughs> I, I got the job. So I did overnights at WBLS um, in New York. And that was an exciting, wonderful okay. period of time musically as well. Okay. And Frankie so we, Crocker. I'm a graduate of Frankie Crocker University. I know that's right. The le the, the legendary one and only Frankie Cocker. That's that's dope. That's dope. So, you know, also, you know, around this time, you know, a lot of people may not know this, but you are the the ex of Mr. Kenneth Gamble. Um yeah. the legend, the legend of Kenneth the legend Kenneth Gamble and you guys share three children together. So we have three children and a six-year-old grandson. Our grandson just turned six this past weekend. Congratulations. Night. We're really good friends. You know, it's what love should be. It should transform. Yeah. If the arrows part doesn't work, yeah. grab on to the part that yeah. the friendship part. No and that's what he and I've done. We we are family. He is the head no of my doubt. family. Our children are grown. We have uh, two sons, and our baby is a girl, a daughter. She's grown. Um, her birthday is next week. She's a singer songwriter, a painter. My youngest son, her name is Idea Gamble. She's a recording. Got a, got a song out right now. Yeah, she's got a, a whole album out on on Sony Legacy, and uh, then and she her father also produced and co-wrote with her and Ben Ford. So it's one of his most recent recording projects with our daughter. And our middle son is um, Issa Saladin. He's a painter as well, a fine artist. And then our okay. oldest son, uh, Khalif Gamble, he also produces and co-hosts uh, his father's podcast. And they've got some exciting news coming soon, but our oldest son works very closely with his dad, helping okay. to manage his business affairs. That's dope. So, yeah, That's dope. So, so, so talk to me about that experience. Just, you know, when, when you were, you know, what what the experience and uh, being in Philadelphia, working around Philadelphia International Records? I mean, talk about that experience. A very heady experience, I might add, because you would walk in 
First of all, there were all these gold and platinum plaques from the floor to the ceiling, one big wall. Um, in all the different rooms, there would be the different teams of songwriters. So you might have Tom Bell and Linda Creed in one room working on songs. Then you would have McFadden and Whitehead in another room. Then there was Dexter Wanzell and Cynthia Biggs. Uh, all of these incredible songwriter, producer, artists. You would walk in the studio. I remember walking in the studio one day and Gamble was putting the strings on the OJ Stairway to Heaven. Mm. And so my very first time visiting Philadelphia International Records was with Gene Carn, who was signing with Gamble and Huff this particular trip. And she invited me to go with her because I had met Kenny Gamble in DC when I was on the air still. And okay. I had hosted an OJ's concert and uh, literally laid my eyes on that man. And it was like thunderbolts, heart pace quickening. My palms were sweating. I was like, oh my God, it's him. It's my man, it's my man. And we were friends for about a year. Uh, he was still married to Dee Dee Sharp, who did the mashed potatoes. Mashed potato time. Yeah, she was a very yeah. famous artist. Yeah. And, but their marriage was on the, it was in the tail end of their marriage okay. and the beginning of our relationship and family. Okay. So yes, Kenny Gamble, who to this day is my partner in the establishment of June Black Music Month. That's so beautiful. we are, we, not only did we create with the grace of God, some beautiful people, our children, yeah. Khalif okay. Saladin and Idea and our okay. grandson, Luke Starr, but um, we have part of our legacy as two people committed to the preservation and promotion of our culture is June Black Music Month. So I like that. That's beautiful that you guys, you know, even even though you guys are no longer together, you guys still share this this bond through music and through the love of our culture. I I I really appreciate that. And this is I can do nothing but you know tip my hat to you guys for that. You know. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate and I received that. And I really love all those great love songs that he wrote yeah. for me, for us. <laughs> For our family. Now so hold on, Miss 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 Williams. Now, which one can you give me one in sure. particular that you know that he actually told you was for you? My favorite song by the OJs is Darling Darling Baby. Classic. Another one that's lesser known by Teddy Pendergrass, who to Today we're commemorating, I know we're recording, but today is the anniversary of Teddy's passing 11 years. Teddy was my neighbor and my best male friend for many years. And it's a beautiful song called It's You I Love. It's on the live mm. Coast to Coast album. Yeah, 1979. Oh, I don't, I'm not good with years, but. Oh, that, okay, I know it's, the, it's on the live album. It's on oh, the live cool. Coast to Coast album, yeah. And it's one of my favorites. Like I said, a lesser known, Teddy yes. song, but yes. it's uh, it's about the essence of our relationship at that time. So oh, yeah, and then let's make a baby, Billy Paul. He wrote that Billy for Paul. our first son, Khalif. Me and Khalif are around that. We're me and him are like a year apart. Okay, yeah, yeah. that was Khalif's song. Yeah, and so, I, I, yeah. I believe we talked on um, Instagram one time, and I believe he was born in Washington D.C. He was born at Howard University Hospital. At That's the same hospital I was born in. My second son too, Saladin. You were born there too. Yeah, I was born out. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you I was were born. A, I was, I'm a year year after Khalid because he he put me on to I visited Philadelphia this summer and he told me about this restaurant on South Broad Street, Ishka Bibbles. Oh, Ishka Bibbles. Yeah, yeah. Ishka Bibbles is on South Street. 
across from the right. TLA. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Look at that. Yeah, you've been to Philly. So yeah, Cleve yeah. and Saladin were born at Howard University Hospital. Okay. okay. I have a lot of history with Howard University. Okay. So I, I just want to add. I'm not going to stay on this too much. We about to get back to you, but let, before I go, um, before we we finish talking about Philadelphia International, like, do you do you feel that Philadelphia International get the respect that it deserves because when we think of motown and stacks records and all these great um these, these great entities and music a lot of times we don't think about philadelphia international and what i have noticed through my research i don't i have never seen any like anything like that before and anything like that since as far as a songwriter and producer running the label and writing and producing songs for every marquee artist. Yeah, you are correct, 100% plus accurate on that statement. Philadelphia International Records has not been as exploited as the Motown sound and story, also the uh, Stax record story, but I will tell you this much, things are in the works, mm. and I believe in the foreseeable future, you will be oh, hearing wow and seeing more about the contributions of Kenny Gamble, Leon Ahuff, and Tom Bell. Okay. So Tom Bell's got a birthday coming up uh, January 26th. So these, um, these three legendary songwriter, producer, composers, arrangers, uh, because Tom is a great arranger, they wow. are still partners to this wow. day. And I will say on paper and in factual actual, wow. they are probably one of the most enduring business partnerships in the history of recorded music, I especially totally I know on the black side, but I don't know yeah. too many other, you know, maybe the Rolling Stones, they, they old yeah. as dirt and they've been together a yeah. long time. But Gamble, Huff and Bell are still partners, Mighty yeah. Three. Mighty they Three owned music. property together on Broad Street. They were among the first black owners of property along with Father Divine. And uh, they also as I said, still together. So they are celebrating, commemorating their 50th anniversary, uh, which I believe is this year or next coming okay. up. So yeah, right. great, great company. And you know, it also set the template for Gamble and Huff are very vocal about their admiration and appreciation for Barry Gordy and Motown. They loved and they patterned Philadelphia International after what was going on at, at Motown when they went to Detroit. Gamble's right. first plane ride was to Detroit to go to Motown. They were being looked at to become staff writer producers. Right. But they saw what was going on and Gamble was like, yo, Huff, we're going to go back to Philly and do this ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. when they established Philadelphia International. They had had yeah. a Gamble Records. They'd had a few smaller labels in, in right. like, say, 60s, the late 60s, 1968. They were on fire. Jerry right. Butler, only the strong Sabah, only the Ice strong Man Sabah, never yeah. gonna give you up. Yeah. Hey, Western Union Man, all of my favorite songs. The yeah. Intruders, Cowboys to Girls, right. um, Dusty Springfield, Brand mm. New Me, which was later recorded by Aretha Franklin. Right. I'm gonna make you love me, recorded by Diana Ross and the, the Temptations, and the Temptations, written by Gamble and Jerry Ross. Jerry Ross. Uh, and that was also on a TV special that everybody was glued on. Yeah, so they right. were on a real like late 60s, but then in 1971, they established Philadelphia International Records. Oh, yeah. And 
they dominated the charts in the 70s, of course, the beginning of the 80s to the mid 80s until Teddy yeah. Pendergrass had his car accident. Yes, yes. I would say it was the beginning of the decline of Philly International's run. I would I would also like to add to that, you know, as far as um, record companies, like when I said I've never seen anything like that, when you mentioned Barry Gordy, mm -hmm. he's heralded in uh, as far as in black music, but as much as I love and respect uh, Barry Gordy as he deserves to be mm -hmm. honored and revered, he did not write songs for the marquee artists like Gamble and Huff. You know, right. like, now right. he, wrote, he wrote a couple of songs. He wrote some songs. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote for Jackie he, Wilson. Right, right. But what I'm saying, Gamble and Huff wrote about 80 to 90% of the hits mm -hmm. while running the label. Yes. And these guys were in their 30s. They were younger than me. Yes. And I yeah. just, you know, you ever think back like, wow, how did these guys pull that off being so young? Well, I was there, so I know how they pulled it off. And I lived with <laughs> Kevin Gamble, so I know how he pulled it off. My good home cooking. My good my good home cooking and my good home loving. <laughs> I know that's right. I know that's right. <laughs> I know stop. that's right. I know stop that's right. Playing. No, but they, they are very prodigious talents. Uh, and Gamble, um, great business acumen. He did not go to Wharton School. He did not come from a wealthy family. His mother worked multiple jobs and a single parent. He, uh, I know more about his background, obviously, than Huff, but he really was very business-minded. And he is the one who orchestrated many of the deals that were very, proved to be very uh, financially successful, prudent for Gamble, Huff, Bell, and the label. But you know, okay. Tommy Bell went on to produce the Stylistics, the Spinners, uh, he, you know, Denise Williams, Johnny Mathis. Uh, so anything that he wrote, Gamble and Huff participated in that. Yeah. Same thing with Tommy. They had Mighty Three Publishing together as okay. partners. So yeah, and look at the label that they created: Lou Rawls, Gene Carn, Phyllis Hyman. Uh, the OJs, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, from which Teddy Pendergrass came. Yeah, yes. he originated with them as the drummer. People's Choice, MFSB, Mother Father, MFSB, which was the yeah. house band. Make now hold on, Miss Deanna, Miss Deanna, hold on for a second. Now this brings me, and, and and again, I could talk Philadelphia all day, but I want to get back to you. But before we go. I have three names that I'm, I, I have three names I want to mention to you. And I want you to just give me a little bit of information or a little bit of your history with these three uh, individuals. Okay. Now, the first one I have is Ronnie Baker. Great musician, uh, backbone, much like the Funk Brothers at Motown, Ronnie Baker, part of the, the, the foundation of the music at uh, Philly International. And I didn't have much of a relationship with Ronnie because I I really, right. my relationship was more with the artist, the producers, okay. the songwriters, okay. than the musicians, except for Earl Young, who to this day, the drummer. Um, yeah, because Earl Young, ba Baker, Harrison Young, they were, yes. you know, work, they yes. worked really close together. Okay, yes. okay. But Earl was also the drummer on a lot of the, the Gamble Huff sessions. Damn it! Damn near all of them. Damn <laughs> him near, and, what is it? Him yeah. and Charles Collins, I believe. Mm -hmm. oh. Okay, so what's the next name? So the next name I have is Dexter McDougal. Did you have a relationship with him? 
No, that's the oh, one. Weldon, uh, Weldon, Weldon McDougall. Weldon McDougall, yes. I did know Weldon McDougall. I met him very early. Um, and yes, he was a photographer and documented a lot of what happened at Philadelphia International. I can't wait to see more of his photographs. Okay. Yes, he's no longer physically with us, but yes, I knew Weldon as well. Now, the last name is someone you just mentioned earlier, uh, Mr. Tom Bell. I absolutely adore Tommy. He's a funny guy. He's got a lot of jokes. He's very witty and charming, and uh, I love him. He is. He was born in Jamaica, raised in Philadelphia, so he's got a Caribbean Jamaican mm. sensibility, uh, but one of the greatest songwriter, producers, arrangers. He reminds me of Charles Stepney, um, who did the Earth, Rotary Connection, Day. Earth, Wind and Fire, Minnie Ripperton. Um, he produced that great Come To My Garden album that is my favorite of all time. Um, oh, you, you definitely worked in radio, uh, Mrs. Deanna. You did, you know your you know your stuff. Yeah, but I love this music. We're talking about great people. So Tom Bell has my admiration as a fabulous arranger producer. I mean, I was listening to Denise Williams' Silly, that that album that he did with her recently, and Johnny Mathis' Life is a Song mm. of Singing. I love his arrangements. And then, hey, the spinners, the stylistics. Right. Let yeah. me go back even further. The Delphonics. The Delphonics, yes, All yes. That great syrupy, right. ultra melodic Very. strings and just just make your heart just Tom Bell. <laughs> I, I have a wonderful personal as well as musical relationship with Tommy Bell. That's that's awesome. That, that's awesome. Just being living, you know, when I listen to the music of that era, I can I can it's it, you know, it takes me back, even though I was I'm me and your son around the same age. But it feel like I was there. So, well, you damn, know, how old are you? That's like the third time you've said that. I was, I, <laughs> I was born in '77. Okay, yeah, you're a year old younger than my my oldest son. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, we 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 talk, we talk. Okay. You know. So anyway, I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep it moving. But you know, I like you know, I, I told myself I said if I ever get the opportunity to talk to Mrs. Deanna, I would love to tell her that you know, tell her that and just hear her experience just living that moment like you were there and it saddens me because you know i was uh, i recently went to um philadelphia and you know the 309 south broad street the building is no longer there and i got a chance to go back in 2013. so you know do you think that has something to do with maybe people not remembering philadelphia international quite as well because you know you know old motown has hits field and stacks have you know, uh, yeah, no, but you know what? You know, the thing is, I believe that people know Philly International, they just don't know it as we're saying Philly International. They know the three degrees. When will I see you again? They know Phyllis Hyman, I can't stand this living all along. They know the songs, they may not know that it came from one collective label under Gamble and Huff. But as I said, um, they were so busy doing the music, running the company, they weren't they weren't branding or marketing themselves. How do you do quite. that? I, I they can't. Just, they were doing so much, but the songs I, I, people know, and and you know they had a phrase. They said, "You'll never forget our tunes." So you'll never find another love like mine yeah, by yeah. Lou Rawls. It's a classic yeah. pop song. Yeah. Um, if you don't know me by now, simply read, re-recorded, and that's probably one of their biggest songs, other yeah. than holding back the, the holding back. Holding back in years. Yeah. 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 Um, so 
so the their songs, the thing about Gamble Huff and Tom Bell is they have written classic music. Many of the songs that we've been discussing were written in the 60s and 70s. And it wow. is the 21st century and people are still listening to covering. And here we go. This generation of artists are sampling everybody from Kanye West to mm -hmm. Nelly. Yeah, they, yeah. they they have been sampling the music of Tommy, Kenny, yeah. and uh, Leon. So okay. that's why I say they may not know, folks, that it's the music that came out of this aggregation of great interracial musicians with MFSB under the guidance of three Black men, Tom Bell, Kenny Gamble, and Leon Ahoff. Yeah. Um, hey, they did it. The, and timeless yeah. music. You I can't wrap my brain around it. It's, it's, hundreds. That's what they've done. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 it, that's that's amazing. It's just hard for me to still, you know, years later, it's hard for me to just wrap my brain around what they accomplish. And when I look at the the legacies of, you know, um, uh, uh, Barry Gordy and you know Stax Records, I I just feel like Philly International needs to be at, at the top because as as far as running a label and and writing and producing, like that's I don't see how that's possible. Like that's yeah, but we saw it with Barry Gordy. Barry Gordy did it. Uh, Sam Cooke. He had Holland Dozier Holland, and he had he had Smokey. Were with they were with they were with Barry Gordy. They were staff writer producers, but Barry Gordy did it, and you know, with a loan, a modest eight hundred dollar loan from his family, he built an empire, and then of course went on to direct yeah. films, Lady Sings the Blues, Mahogany with Diana Ross. I mean, he did things, and you have to look at the time frame. We're talking about the oppression of racism in America. Without. And the civil rights movement. Barry Gordy was very, and also he had a spoken word label where he was recording the speeches of Dr. King. Mm. Um, very, very legendary. And also, uh, Stax with um, my dear friend Al Bell was doing incredible oh, yeah. things with the staple singers and Carla Thomas and her father Rufus Thomas. But Gamble and Huff, I think, established, I know for a fact, because Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis remain my friends to this day, and they cite. Gamble and Huff as their inspiration oh, as songwriter, producers, record company executives who also signed and identified lots of talent, like the Sounds of Blackness. We know what they did with Janet Jackson. I mean, she wasn't signed to their labels, flight right. or perspective, but they produced her hits yeah. that some are now 30 years old. Can you believe that? SOS Band and Alexander O'Neill, Sherelle. Sherelle, there you go. You yeah. know your music. You know what yeah. you're talking about. Jimmy and yeah. Terry did all of that. But they were modeled, they modeled yeah. off of Gamble and Huff, as did uh, Babyface and L.A. Reid. L.A. Reid. But they were musicians themselves, like Jimmy and Terry. They were more like Jimmy and Terry, because Jimmy and Terry, of course, were in the time with Morris Day and right, with right. Um, Jerome Benton yeah. and Jesse Johnson and that whole aggregation and under the guise of Prince, you know, Prince right. put together the, the time. So yeah, Gamble and Huff, Tommy Bell deserve to get a lot of credit. And I'm yeah. honored to know each of those gentlemen and to have been there when they recorded some of these amazing hits that are classics and will be so as long as human beings are on this planet. Global yeah galactic music <laughs> so anyway so you know um as we're talking about this this great music i, I know uh, a lot of us are familiar with your work at wdas radio um how important do you feel 
you know, with, with a lot of your work uh, at WDAS Radio, um, how do you feel we as a people, how do you feel as we as a people do as far as preserving black music and, and you know, black music culture? What is your take on that? Well, WDAS was a wonderful experience because it was a black owned, again, I, I've worked at black owned radio stations. I've had the good fortune of doing that most of my career. So you figure WHUR owned by Howard University, black owned. WDAS was black owned at the time that I worked there in the 80s. I worked there throughout the 80s, 80 until 89 going into uh, the 90s. So it was wonderful to be at a radio station where the emphasis was on culture and the community. And I'm big on that. So it was an honor to be at a radio station like WDAS. And the same thing with Urban One. I've worked with Kathy Hughes pretty much since the inception of her companies and uh, Black Owned, again, by a Black woman, uh, uh, Urban One. So I worked at uh, Urban One for a good long time. And so I love working for uh, Black folks. And the other thing is I'm on the board of the National Museum of African-American Music in Nashville, Tennessee. In fact, our ribbon cutting ceremony is happening uh, soon. And there is a repository for our culture, for our history from the 1500s until now. Many people say, why Nashville? Well, why not? The Fist Jubilee Singers, who were the first major ambassadors on a global level in the 1800s, came out of Nashville from Fisk. Okay. And also a great tradition of gospel music and R&B. And so it is truly Music City, not just because of the contributions of country people, but Black folks have made enormous contributions to music in Tennessee, in Nashville. The museum is on Fifth and Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville across from the Bridgestone Arena, and on the other side, across from the original Grand Ole Opry. So I sit on the board. I also co-chair with uh, entertainment attorney, Laron Rogers, the Music Industry Relations Collective. It's a group of about 45 music industry legends from Gail Mitchell, who is the Black music editor at Billboard magazine and has been there um, well over 20 something years, to um, Angela Yee, who was just installed into the Radio Hall of Fame, Broadcasters Hall of Fame with DJ MV and Charlemagne. Angela Yee is part of my collective. Uh, so it's a great group of people who are like me, like-minded, committed to the preservation and promotion of black music okay. and culture. So yeah, I'm really excited. Awesome. About it. You know, I encourage awesome. everybody to check out Black Music Museum com to learn more about our movement and to join, become a member and support this institution that will need all of our support. No so I'm really proud of my work with the museum. Now, did this vision, did this, this, did this vision, did, was this connected to when you got, when you and um, uh, Miss Sheila Eldridge, you guys started the, um, the Association African-American uh, Music Foundation back in 1990? Was this, this this the culmination of, of that? It is part of it. Good question. Uh, I am is the acronym for the International Association of African American Music. We literally produced the annual Black Music Month event every June, and we also went overseas to London. To uh, I produced a USO tour 
with uh, Philip Bailey of Earth, Wind and Fire. We visited five military installations and Guam with um, other musicians, uh, Frank McComb and um, some other groups. But uh, I am, we used to produce music conferences, seminars, panels, a black tie gala. We honored everybody from Albertina Walker, the great gospel singer, Charlie Atkins, the choreographer for The Temptations, to Nina Simone, um, maybe a year or so before she made her physical transition. So I love the work that we did with I Am for straight, maybe 14, 15 years. Okay. We did a lot of work and a lot of preservation of culture. And that's also where I petitioned Congress to establish June Black Music Month officially in the annals of legislation in Congress. And okay. uh, successfully was able to do that during the Clinton administration. Jimmy Carter was the first American president to say June is Black Music Month. And that happened uh, June 7th, 1997. I'm sorry, June 7th, 1997. 79. I thought you said you wasn't good with years. Well, that one I remember. I was sitting with the president. I, I was his guest. Gamble and I went as a couple. And, uh, it was a pretty heady event. Evelyn Champagne King, uh, Billy Eckstein, Chuck Berry um, performed with Sarah Powell Jordan and Dexter Wenzel was the musical director. It was something not to forget. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. So, you know, a lot of people also do not know that, you know, you work in artist development. So tell us a little bit about that and how long you have been uh, working in artist development. I'm the CEO of Influence Entertainment. It is a media strategy company. I'm a celebrity strategist. I've worked with high profile individuals uh, such as Diana, Justin Bieber, uh, members of the Dave Matthews Band, the Zach Brown Band, which is a country group. So uh, artists in all genres, from heavy metal to hip hop, ASAP Rocky, PI, all manner of artists. And what I do is help collaborate with these individuals to develop their their media personas, their brand. So I am honored that I'm in my 26th year as an entrepreneur, as a business person. I, I work for myself. Worked for myself. And I have uh, other coaches that work with me, Kay Fox, Sweet um, Sarah J, and uh, Laia St. Clair also work under my company. People can learn more about our clients and what we do specifically at influenceentertainment.com. So, you know, it's a very niche part of the business. I also work with actresses, um, just worked with Brave Williams, and she's an actress who is just, um, you can see her right now on Netflix on a love, I forgot what it's, love.com. And so all manner of CEOs of companies. And as I said, we do message development and help them present their best person okay. publicly. Mm -hmm. Now with all, with your many years working in the, uh, the music industry, uh, you know, you've seen the advancements in technology as far as, you know, the internet and social media. How important do you feel it is as far as uh, do you feel like do you feel that experience has helped you become successful as far as being a, um, a media strategist? Not necessarily. I was doing coaching well before the Internet became a factor. Um, you know, 26 years ago, the Internet was not in full swing as it is now. So it is merely a tool to connect with people, fans, admirers 
headquarters. And so it is a very important tool in my clients that I'm talking about the execution of good social media, good social media. I had a client, I had to tell her to stay off of social media for a month because she was always fighting with people. Her social media was very negative. People just felt like they could say Don't anything. tell us her name. Don't tell us her name. I'm not telling her name. And um, but but I, even now when I do my social media, I don't I don't have negative social media. You know, some people are like, oh, I get into fights and arguments. That's not the case. My social media is very positive, nurturing, uplifting, and that's my part of my brand, part of what I teach with my clients. So, a social media is, you know, human advancement. I'm I'm with it. I'm grown. Um, I, a friend of mine was saying, wow, you're doing pretty good for a woman in your late 60s with social media and the computer. And I was like, um, I'm in business and I am of these times, you know, so it is important to stay up as best as possible as you age because things are changing rapidly and they're going to change even more. So I am not one left behind. I'm a forward thinking individual. So, now, when you initially you know, got into the music industry. What was your vision? What did Deanna Williams want it to become? You know, because you have, you, you've worn so many hats throughout the years, but what was your initial vision when you got into the music industry? I mentioned earlier that I had a five-year plan that I established when I was 18, and one was to get a job in radio full-time, two, to work in television, um, three, I wanted to work in New York, the number one market for radio, television, for broadcasting, or I wanted to fall in love and have a family, and uh, all those things were accomplished within three years of me establishing those goals, pretty much three, four years. So my initial desire was to be on the radio. I love music. I wanted to be a musician, but I failed terribly at uh, being a musician. I played. No, hold on, hold on. I got to stop you. I got to stop you, Mrs. Williams. I did my research and come to find out that you, you worked under the legendary Jimmy Heath. I studied with Jimmy Heath. I was a student of Jimmy Heath in the Jazzmobile program. Jimmy okay. Heath, one of the, the oh. who passed, um, transitioned um, not long ago, of the legendary Heath brothers uh, from Philly. Uh, but yeah, Jimmy Heath was my flute teacher. He introduced me to his son, James M. Tume, who did Juicy Fruit, one of the most sampled songs, uh, Biggie Small. Hold on, hold on, hold on. James Untume is Jimmy Heath's son? Exactly, yes. I'm embarrassed, I never knew that. Well, you know, you're still young and you know a lot about music, but the beauty of life is that we need to learn every day. And that's a great thing. Knowledge is power. And you're just accumulating as you go along. Yes, James Untume, the son of Jimmy Heath. Okay, okay. And my so, dear friend, he introduced me to Miles Davis. Wow. James Untume. So which, which album we talking about? Which, on the corner, bitches brew. On the corner. On the corner. Oh, that was that was that was very uh, groundbreaking. You know yeah. that whole era of Miles Davis. So yeah. you know, being that you've been in the industry a, a long time, what are some of the challenges that you that you have seen as far as being a uh, moving around in the industry and how you have how you have overcame those things? Well. I'm, I'm good at challenges and overcoming, but some of the clients that I've worked with and some of the artists who I've befriended over the years, the ill treatment of songwriter artists, especially black, not getting their prop dues financially or in terms of recognition. 
And so that that's heart wrenching. I remember I spent the afternoon with little Richard years ago. This is back in the 80s when I was at WBAS. And he was sharing the stories of how, you know, he just got ripped up. He wrote songs that he was not properly compensated for. So that has always been painful for me to observe and to see in our industry. In fact, I have uh, past year of 2020, I worked with the two young ladies who created the show Must Be Pause, Brianna Aguimang and uh, Jamila Thomas. Okay. And these two sisters, you know, remember when they were like blackout and everybody, it was a, I believe a Tuesday. Those two sisters, I'm big on mentoring. I'm big on passing on. Mm. I'm hearing like a lot of feedback. So, do you hear it? No, it's it's fine. Just give me a second. You sounded pretty good. I don't know. Oh. What, how about now? Okay, let's see. All right, no, I don't hear it. Well, how about now? We'll see. Now I don't hear it now. Well, oh. I don't know. Oh. Maybe I a little more. But anyway, I, I value mentorship and mentoring young men and women. And so one of my mentees is the vice president of Live Nation Urban, uh, Brandon Pankey is his name. I met him as a student at the University of Pennsylvania, and now he's running things uh, along with Sean G. So I love seeing young people excel and also take some of the energy that I have for black music and black artists because they're the next generation. Like the other day, one of my mentees on the radio, her name is Jackie Page. She's on the air in DC. Do you know Jackie Page? No, no. She does middays on, I want to say on. Hold on, hold on. Of course, yeah. Yes, on, I believe, a kiss of him. Jackie Page is in DC and I spoke to her the other day and she's one of my ladies. Young lady who was on the radio in New Bern, North Carolina. I met one of her line sisters in LA at a Grammy party. And she was like, we talked to my girlfriend. She's trying to move up. She's really talented. And I gave her my card. Jackie reached out to me, told her to send me an air check. It was phenomenal. And I passed it on to my then boss, Colby Cole Tyner, who was McCoy Tyner's nephew. He's the vice president of programming for Urban One. And he heard what I heard, talent. And now she is in middays in DC. She's on in a couple of other markets. I think she's in uh, Charlotte and a couple of other markets. But I love mentoring. That's that is our obligation to mentor to mentor those who are coming behind us, beside us. It's very important to me. So now, do you feel? Do you feel as uh, we as black people? Do you feel this as as a culture, black and Latino people? Do you feel that we preserve our culture because you know we have a lot of um, people that we we have a lot of different people and entities that come into the culture, but they do not give back. So as you know, with you being in the industry for so many years. Do you feel that we as a people do our best to preserve the culture? Because I know with everything that you have done and people like yourself, but what is your take on that as far yeah, as preserving black people our culture? Are monolithic. Black people are not monolithic. We all do different things. And to answer your question, yes, there are great people like Deborah Willis, who's one of my most admired people. She's a great photographer, documentarian. 
uh, great work, Dr. Henry Louis Gates. Uh, I was watching Finding Your Roots the other night, which is one of my favorite shows on TV because it deals with the origins of who you are, where you come from, and your people. It deals with DNA and it deals with genealogy. Um, so there are people all over. There's a wonderful program, Juliana Richardson in Chicago. It's called The History Makers. It is a repository of people in every strata that you can think of, sports, entertainment, business, education, science, STEM, all of that. It's called thehistorymakers.com. So there are lots of the people who are on the regular preserving our culture and our history. I have to be among those people. So yes, Black people, we, we are, however, a bit disenfranchised because of the nature of how we were captured, brought here, made to work for free. You know, when I was looking at footage of the Capitol revolt, uh, the, the effort uh, on the parts of some real negative people to tear down our democracy, I looked at the Capitol building and I said, that building along with the White House was built by free labor provided by black people. Right. And we don't tend to think of it that way, but we should. So part of our issue talk about preservation. If you don't know your her story or his story, it's difficult to preserve when, you, when you're just trying to survive. You're not trying to look back. You're looking at right now where you are, trying to eat, trying to maintain, and moving forward. So, you know, it's a mixed situation. There are people committed to the preservation, the promotion, protection of the culture, and then there are others who could care less. Right, right. You know, when I think of like artist development, when I think of like artist development and what you do as far as as far as uh, artist development, do you feel like we need more of that as far as, you know, because we think of like Motown and, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, record labels, they, they had that and we don't have that, that uh, as much. So do you feel like we need to bring that back as far as, um, you know, incorporating that into the uh, the music hemisphere? Well, yes, you referenced Motown, the woman's name who did artist development there was Mrs. Maxine Powell. I literally flew to Detroit, had the good fortune, my friend Michael Dinwiddie, who's a professor at NYU and also a great theater um, creative, uh, introduced me to Mrs. Powell. She's the one who did etiquette for The Temptations, Robinson, The Miracles, The Four Tops, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, all of those people. And the woman who succeeded her, her name, Suzanne DePax. Suzanne worked the Jackson Five. And you also see her in the various movies. She worked with Mr. Gordy as his right hand, but did artist development as well. Not everybody gets it. Um, I have an opportunity to work with a label and some labels hire me on the regular. My, my biggest client is Atlantic Records, Warner Brothers, um, Sony. I work, with, I work with all the labels. So some publicists have budgets and are able to give a me, uh, a sweet Sarah, who is a one of my is Alaya K. Fox. They, they have a budget to do it. But it is a kind of a, a, a dying art but really some artists really need it and some don't get it and some are just thrown out there and don't know how to talk about the art that they create or the lives that they're living. So I feel very honored when I have an opportunity, I call it a collaboration, when I have an opportunity to collaborate with an artist and show them best practices 
discussing their life, what they do. So what inspires you, Mrs. Miss Deanna, you know, at this at this uh, point in your career, what inspires you to just continue to, you know, go forward and be, you know, transparent and be innovative? I'm inspired by Almighty God, my fellow human beings. I have some pretty dynamic, close, dear friends. I was talking to my dear friend, my, my best D'Angelo this morning about his new radio show on Sonos Radio. Um, he curated over 500 songs, and I can't wait to, when I finish with you, I'm going to listen to him. Uh, but what inspires me? Creatives, people that have talent. I'm very fascinated by Gordon Parks was a good friend. I love people who are multi-talented, not afraid to delve into that. Some people would be like, oh, what do you do? Like, I used to get this a lot. You're on the radio. You're on TV. You produce events. You do this and that. Because I produced the Marian Anderson Award at the okay. for the Performing Arts here in Philadelphia. I've done tributes to Barry Gordy, John Bon Jovi, Gantler uh, Huff, Patti LaBelle, Wynton Marcellus, last year, Cool in the Gang. Uh, so I do a few things. I do voiceover work. No day is the same. I don't like, I don't engage in boredom because every day is different. For instance, earlier today, I'm working on a script and I was writing and searching for my script. So it was very exciting. I just turned the phone off and everything else and just focused on writing. And so my long-term goal was always to produce documentaries. And for, oh, for the last, I want to say 13 years or so, I've been part of a show called Unsung on the TV yes. One Network where I'm a commentator. In fact, I had the opportunity to co-exec produce the episode on Teddy Pendergrass was my borrow a cup of sugar neighbor. And uh, I delivered the obituary at his funeral uh, at the request of his wife, his widow Joan. So I was real excited about that opportunity because my long term was always to do that, to produce content that documents our cultural and economic contributions to American and global culture. And that's what I will continue doing for the duration of my life. I'm committed to that. No doubt, no doubt. Well, Mrs. Deanna, it was an honor of having you here on the Bridging the Generation podcast. Uh, words can explain, you know, how much I appreciate, you know, all of your many contributions uh, to the culture, uh, to the music industry. And, you know, it's, 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 Amazing, you know, just thinking about all the things that you've accomplished in your careers. It's amazing. How do you stay grounded? Just knowing all the things that you've done, what makes you grounded? God, my family, my friends, they won't let me be anything but grounded. And so that is important. I'm, I'm very clear on gratitude. I have an attitude of gratitude. I live, I live and I'm present in each second. So I'm very grateful. I'm, I'm very proud of you as a young man who is using your platform, your time to bridge the gaps, Thank to you. recognize what has transpired previously and how it impacts now and what's to come. You are the now and the future. And when we talk about preservation of culture and music, that's exactly what we're doing. So you are an ambassador. You're an inheritor of the work that I've been doing and that people were doing that I met when I first got into the business. So I'm grateful to you for the invitation and the opportunity to share a little bit of my, my love of Black music. I, I, feel, I feel the love radiating 
through <laughs> through through the screen. But I, I, I that words cannot explain that. Really, that that was really touching, uh, Mrs. Williams. Thank you, thank you. And um, you got anything else going on outside? I know you you mentioned the the museum is it's, it's open. Um, I believe right. Well, we're we are opening. Our ribbon cutting is coming up. Um, Mel Cal Jr. Day, Dr. Martin King Day, but the museum will be open, and I'm super excited because it's a sixty-two million dollar project that's been in the makings over twenty something years. So for this to come to fruition, and I've only been involved the last seven years or so years, so I'm really excited about this because, like I said, it is the culmination of everything that I stand for as it pertains to our music. You'll see it at that museum. So I invite you to come to Nashville um, on the 18th. Tune in to blackmusicmuseum.com so you can see the ribbon cutting and everything else that we've got going on. So yes, come to Nashville, y'all. This is our museum. Black music, created music created by Black folks, but American music for everyone and for the world. Okay. Okay. So, things to you. Come through to Nashville, and be on the lookout for more on the anniversary of uh, Ken Campbell, Leon Huff, and Tom Bell's Philadelphia International Records. With with Miss Williams again. Thank you so much. Before we thank you so much, Mrs. Mrs. Williams. Thank you so much. You take care. Thank you.